1 John chapter 5, starting from verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father in heaven, we give you thanks so much that you speak to us and speaking to us through your word, we know you. You've revealed yourself. That is a glorious, joyful thing. We are not left in the dark. We can live and abide and walk in the light. So, Father, we pray that you'll do that for us this morning, that by your spirit, you will help us to love your word, to know it, to be challenged to live in accord with it. Shine your light on those dark areas of our lives, those areas where we need to submit them to your Lord, the Lordship of your Son. Work in us to show and demonstrate the love that your word holds out. And we pray that you'll bless us in this and help me, Father, speak clearly from this passage as I ought. For your glory we pray and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one thing that we do not need more of, it's confidence. Uh, every child these days seems to receive a participation award. Uh, some even get trophies for doing nothing more than showing up. Uh, red pens were recently banned in schools as the ticks and crosses were seen as too confrontational and threatening, potentially damaging to students' psychology and confidence. Surveys, multiple surveys, are, are, show that around 70% of people rate their driving skills as above average. And even when drivers are in serious accidents requiring hospitalization, where they hit a fixed object hard enough to overturn their vehicles, in these surveys, they still rate their driving skills closer to expert than very poor. Even the shelves at your local Christian bookstores are filled with heaps of books which can, at best, be described as self-help. The top podcasts available on iTunes under Christianity feature four preachers who are essentially self-help speakers, teaching people to be more confident in their lives. Advertisers major on it. Make us feel more confident about owning your product and then we will buy it. Movies celebrate it in their stories. We vote for the politician who appears to be more confident, never for the one who looks weak and humble. 
we are surrounded by and saturated with messages to build our confidence. So that is the last thing we need, is more of this. Why? Because for most of this messaging, the source of confidence is dangerously misplaced. We live in a world that is obsessed with self-confidence. And when we think about that, we, we are drawn to self-confident people. The confidence they exude, it draws us to them. We want to be like them. This can be a danger when it comes to false teachers. Here in 1 John, we've seen over the past eight weeks that this church was struggling. A sizable group within the church had upped and left, probably following key leaders who were already turning their backs on Jesus. They were denying Jesus. They were preaching a different gospel. And probably one of the temptations for those remaining was that they looked impressive and the remaining church looked unimpressive. So John writes here at the end to give this church proper confidence. Confidence rooted in the gospel, rooted in their community together. Now in this closing part of the letter, John wants this church to be confident about their faith, confident in their prayers for each other, confident to protect each other, and confident in their understanding of the gospel. A confidence most definitely not rooted in themselves, but a confidence rooted in the gospel. So our passage begins with what is probably the purpose statement of the whole book. So if you've got your Bibles there, keep it open to 1 John 5. Have a, look at me, uh, have a look with me at verse 13. I think the purpose statement of the entire book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, just looking at this verse here, a few things to notice. First, John is writing to Christians, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, to believe is to trust. It is to have faith, to know who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and to live with Jesus as your king. And so to these Christians, he, he wants them to know that in all they've been through, in all that they've seen and heard, John wants them to know that trusting Jesus alone is worth it. Trusting Jesus helps them to know that they have eternal life. And the word here is assurance, a confident belief. Now, when it comes to confidence, there is false confidence and real confidence. Uh, false confidence is based on our performance, knowing that I'm doing the right things, that I'm saying the right things. False confidence can even be found in those who believe the right things, as though merely ticking off the right beliefs in your head alone is enough. So let me ask you, is your confidence a false confidence? Have you been relying on the wrong things to make you right with God? Real confidence is found in truly believing, really trusting Jesus as your king, knowing the truth of the gospel and the truths of the Bible in your head, letting that fill your heart and your life with peace and joy, and then living that out in love. Real confidence is found in those who know, who feel, and who live what Jesus is saying in these pages. 
And for those who know and feel and live, there is a confidence that we can, ha- we can have about eternity. We can know with certainty that eternal life is ours. Not because we have earned it, but because we trust the only person who could ever give it to us as a gift. It's a gift. Years ago, Billy Graham, when he came to Australia, I think in the 1960s, he was interviewed on TV, and the journalist leaned over and said, Billy, when you die, are you going to heaven? And Billy leaned forward without a blink of an eye and said, yes. And the switchboards lit up. People were phoning in mad. How dare someone say that they can be certain they have eternal life? How do you think you're good enough to do that? And they completely misunderstand the gospel. It is a gift that is given to us. I can be certain not because I know I'm good enough, but because I know the one who gave it to me is a gift. And that gift, eternal life. And when I think about that word, that phrase, eternal life, I can't get my head around it. And I think I can't get my head around it because I often think about the quantity of it. Eternal, infinite. I think that is impossible to get your head around. But when you look at this phrase, I think what we're meant to see is not the quantity of it, but the quality of it. Eternal life. Life in abundance. Life free from the aches and the pains of our sore bodies. Life free from stress and anxiety and worries of exams or mortgage stress or stress for the future. Life free from gastro that requires you to drive your sick child to the hospital at 2.30 in the morning. A life free from cancer. A life free from having to bury our loved ones. A life of never-ending love. A life of constant, overflowing joy. A life of utter and complete satisfaction. And all of that pales to the greatest of all joys, him. Being able to see God face to face. You know, the one that angels dare not look upon? The one to whom demons flee in utter terror? We get to see face to face. To look on him for all eternity. That is why trusting Jesus is worth it. Now, assurance is not just for the next life. John is not just saying, we're just holding out a promise for the future. But he says that we can live with this sort of confidence here and now. And we can do that in a number of ways. John says, firstly, that we can have confidence in our prayers. Uh, Have a look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Uh, John says three things here about confidence, the confidence we have here. First, we can ask 
anything of God. Uh, You know what that's like. A, A child should expect to be able to go up to their father and ask them anything. It can get annoying, but that is the privilege of being a child. Second, he hears us. Because of Jesus' death, we now have unfettered access to God. Our joy is to be able to approach God as our Father and ask Him for anything. Because we have a Heavenly Father who cares and who delights to hear us. Now, does this mean that we can ask whatever we want? Perhaps even for our selfish desires? Well, no. Because third, God hears us if we ask anything according to his will. So that begs the question, what is God's will? Now that is a big question. And I'm just going to open that can of worms and run away because I'm not going to explain it. Instead, let me briefly highly recommend this book, Guidance and the Voice of God. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, go and read that book. It will clear it all up. It is God's will that you read this book. Okay? And let me quickly say, God's will is not usually tied to you personally. So if you're asking, what is God's will for my life? And you're looking for a specific path that God has set especially for you and no one else, then you might be asking the wrong question. Read the book, it'll clear that up. But think of that phrase, God's will. See, if I will something to happen, how can you tell that I have willed something to happen? Well, I tell you what I want to do, or I tell you to do something, or I do something for you. So my will is to drink a cup of coffee between services. So I message the Sunday YF leaders to bring me a cup of coffee before the second service, or I go out to Hawk and Drive and I buy one for myself. Well, here in 1 John, God's will has already been revealed in what he tells us to do, or in God doing something for us already. So here's a a sample of what we see here in 1 John up on the screen. Chapter 1 verse 9 or chapter 2 and chapter 2 verses 1 to 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. So it is God's will that anyone who confesses their sin to God will be forgiven by him and have their sins propitiated by Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 23, we are to confess the Son. We are to believe that Jesus is the King and make Him the King of our lives. And in doing so, we will have relationship with the Father. Chapter 3, verse 23, we are commanded to believe in Jesus and love one another. And he goes on in chapter 4 to detail what loving one another looks like. Chapter 3, verse 24, it is God's will to abide in us, to live in us if we keep that command to love one another. Chapter 4, verse 6, it is God's will that we listen to the apostles and we discern truth from error. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 25, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 13, God's will is to give us eternal life through Jesus. So here's the point. These verses carry for us what God's will is. And if you pray for these things... And if, you pray for these, and if you pray for things that are shaped by God's word to us, God promises to hear and to respond. To confirm that, John says in chapter 5, verse 15, that you can know God hears you whenever you pray, when you know the requests you've made are what, God, what he wills. 
God definitely hears you and definitely responds when your prayers are driven by his agenda. Let me say that again. God definitely hears you and he will definitely respond if your prayers are driven by his agenda. Now, here is where I think we have to be careful as we gather in Bible studies. See, I think when our Bible studies and, and the way they're currently run, they tend to major on spending lots of time in the Bible and knowing it and understanding its message and then a little bit of time in prayer. So I think we need to up prayer in our fellowship groups, I think, from what I can see. But my main concern is that our prayers need to be shaped by God's word for us. So I think what happens or tends to happen is that we get to that point in prayer in our groups together and what we do is we leave the Bible to the side and what we've learned and we just then just share about what we need to pray for. And that makes our prayers shaped mostly by our needs and our wants. So the encouragement here is that we should be shaping our prayers for ourselves and our lives together according to God's agenda. So, you know, it's, it's good to pray for each other when we're sick or when we're in ill health. It's good to pray for healing. And we can also be praying that the sufferer would be loved and cared for in a Christ-glorifying way and that they would, and the sufferer would persevere through the pain, looking ahead to that pain-free world to come and to do so in a way that glorifies him. It's, it's good to pray for wisdom in parenting and for our kids to have success in their studies. That's not a bad thing. We should also be asking that God would help them treasure Jesus above all else. And that we pray, pray that we would, as parents, model for them what confession of sin and holiness looks like. If we're going to call them to confess their sins, if we're going to call them to be holy, then we need to be praying for ourselves as parents and as fellow brothers and sisters to model that. Now think of the things that you would like prayer for. And think how you would shape those prayers to fit God's agenda and not just your needs. Now in verses 16 and 17, John gives another example of God-willed prayer. Have a look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a little bit confusing. Uh, in order to work out what John is saying here, I think we kind of need to work backwards through this, these two verses. So start at verse 17. So have a look at that first phrase in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. I think that's simple enough to understand. God has created this world with right and wrong according to his standard, and he's embedded that into our hearts. And any wrong that we commit against each other horizontally or against God vertically is ultimately what we call sin. Now, in general, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. It is a weighty punishment because sin is a weighty problem, and it needs to be. You know, when we're working out the, what is the appropriate punishment for a crime, we take into account the value of the person or thing the crime was committed against. So as an example, imagine that I'm at Officeworks and I steal a ream of reflex copy paper. 
When I get caught, that was quite a fair bit of fun photoshopping that. When I get caught, the punishment for that is probably going to be small, right? A slap on the wrist, and maybe I might be banned from going into that particular store ever again. But if I wandered into the manager's office and I stole a stack of hundred-dollar bills, well, then the punishment for that is greater. It's much more severe. See, technically, I just stole paper and a little bit of plastic, right? But the value of the money is worth more than the photocopying paper, so the punishment is more severe. The, the greater the value, the weightier the punishment. We sin against a God of infinite value, a God who is infinitely holy, infinitely pure and perfect. When we sin against someone of infinite value, then the punishment needs to reflect the weight and seriousness of our crime. The only punishment worth our sins is eternal death. So in verses 16 and 17, what the heck is this sin that does not lead to death? So let's take a step back for a moment. Let's, have a, let's scan the book of 1 John. In John's letter so far, what is it that leads to life? Answer? Trusting and abiding in Jesus. What does it look like to abide in death? To deny Jesus is the Christ and to hate other Christians. Now, in this letter, who are those hating Christians? Or well, it is the false teachers, those who denied that Jesus was the Christ, denied that, what you needed, that you needed Jesus to forgive your sins, denied that they were sinners, claiming to be sin-free, and loved the world and the desires of the flesh. So the sin of these false teachers, the sin that leads to death, is to deny Jesus is the Christ, deny that they are a sinner and to love the world. This is the sin that leads to death. You see, true Christians will sin. We are not perfect. They will fail to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. They will stumble and they will disappoint each other. But a true Christian will not abandon Jesus will not deny their sin and not fall in love with the world. That there, altogether, is a cocktail for death. So now back to verse 16. John says that if you see your brother sinning, what should you do? You should pray for them. And if you pray for them, you can be confident in knowing that God will give them life. Now, this is not a name it and claim it sort of prayer. John is not saying we claim their lives from sin. It doesn't work that way. He's not saying that we just ask God to give them life while they keep on sinning. For God to give life means that he forgives those who confess and repent. He promises them eternal life if they come to Jesus for forgiveness. So let's wrap this together. John is saying here in verses 16 and 17 that when you see your fellow Christians sinning, you should pray for them, help them confess their sins, point them to Jesus and pray with them for forgiveness, knowing that God will hear our prayer. You can be confident that our prayer for forgiveness will be heard because, as we saw earlier, it is God's will to forgive those who confess. It is a profoundly loving thing to do to our fellow brothers and sisters to confess our sins to each other and then point each other to Jesus and remind each other that there is no other gospel. 
to pray for forgiveness with each other, and to walk away in confidence knowing that we are saved and have eternal life. And this confidence extends not just to reactively praying for each other, but it also extends to our proactive defense of each other. Have a look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, Note again verse 18. You see the words up here on the screen? The words keep on, there in the middle. Remember, these words aren't actually there in the original, like in chapter 3, verse 6. So literally, the verse says here, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now, like in chapter 3, verse 6, John isn't saying that Christians stop sinning and become perfect. He's referring to that specific sin of denying Jesus, denying sin, hating Christians and loving the world. That's the sin that leads to death. Christians don't do that. What we do is we protect each other from this sort of false teaching. We protect each other from being drawn into false teaching. And notice the confidence of the def- and definitive wording at the end of verse 18. And the evil one does not touch him. When we lovingly look out for each other and we protect each other from false teaching, Satan cannot grasp onto us fully and finally. It's not saying that suffering or no suffering or bad thing will ever happen. And it's not saying that Satan will have no influence in the believer. But John is saying that when we protect each other, we will not be swayed from turning away from Jesus. Two things I think come out of this for us. First, Protection is a community project. We are here for each other. I think that's what John is calling on us to do. Uh, is to, uh, I think what John is calling on us to do works best in the context of a local church when we are ga- growing in relationship with each other, where we're learning from Scripture together, where we confess our sins to each other and we point each other personally to Jesus. And I think that means a Christian who chooses the solo life is a dead man walking and prone to falling into the error of false teaching and the traps of false teaching. There are all sorts of reasons why someone might want to leave the church. I know it can be frustrating being in a group of sinners. We're going to disappoint each other from time to time. And if it hasn't happened already, be warned. I will disappoint you at some point. Not because I don't love you or because I'm totally careless or do something or forget to do something. It's just because I'm not perfect. I'll say something or do something or forget to do something that will disappoint you. And that's why what John says here is so important for all of us. I need the church as much as we all need the church to protect us when we sin and do something stupid. I need and we all need the loving kindness of fellow Christians in the local church to care enough to graciously point out our sins and point us to Jesus. Now that leads to the second application from this. This takes time and relational energy. And so what John is saying here best applies to the church you are currently a part of. And so 
when you think about the circles that we live in, right, in the middle, we have our church, our family, and our friends in the center. These are the people that we spend most of our time with. And then you know there are other Christian family and friends. Maybe we, have, we see them in passing at uni or at work. Uh, maybe there are relatives we only see during the holidays. And then on the outside are other Christians, those in other churches, Christians you meet online, Christians you meet in passing. When it comes to time and relational energy, we have more with the inner circle and less with the outer part. That makes sense, right? So what John is saying here in verses 18 and 19, I think best applies to the inner circle and especially to the local church. So the more I know someone and spend time with them, the more responsibility I think we have to each other. I'm not responsible for correcting some random person's theology on the internet, no matter how much I get triggered by it. But we are responsible for each other sitting here in the pews. We are responsible to encourage each other in what, is, what it is that we know. Uh, the closing confidence that John gives to his readers is to reassure his readers that in the face of the temptation to walk away from Jesus, he says this, we've got the truth, and you can know that with confidence. Have a look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And right at the end here, John is saying, Jesus has come. He has given us this understanding and we are united with him. Being united to Jesus helps us to know that he is God and that he is the one who gives us eternal life. So keep yourselves from idols. Don't go worshipping anyone or anything else other than Jesus. I think there's great security and comfort in knowing that the gospel message that saved John's readers 2,000 years ago is the same gospel message for us today. We live in a constantly changing world where we're always looking for new answers to the problems that we face. But John is saying here, no. The truth that we need is with Jesus. So stick with him. John wrote this letter to give his readers assurance, confidence in their salvation, a confidence rooted not in their own goodness, but grounded in the goodness of Jesus. So do you have this assurance? If you were to die tonight, not that I want it to happen, but if you were to walk out of this church this afternoon or this morning and get hit by a car on the way, can you know with certainty that you will be welcomed into eternal life forever with Jesus? John wants us to know, he wants you to know that you can have this assurance because the source of this assurance is trusting Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone, not any new fancy teaching and most definitely not in denying Jesus, but it's in Jesus making himself known, coming in the flesh, dying and rising to life, sending his spirit to dwell in us so that we might be reassured of all of these things. 
And John wants us to see that the outcome of that assurance in this letter has a specific look. It looks like confessing our sins to each other, trusting Jesus together, loving one another, growing in our discernment, growing in our trust of the gospel message. This is God's word to us. Let us pray. Father, as we started out in this journey in this letter, it seemed really difficult. We thank you, though, for the clarity that has come out. We thank you that even in the details, in the wandering ideas, the simple message of trusting Jesus and him alone is shining through, and so we pray that you'll help us to do that. Help us to look back and read back on this word with great fondness for its message that we can know Jesus, that he, has, he is at work in us, and he's at work in us to love one another and care for each other. Father, help us to take that simple message and to do it. it it's hard. We can and we will disappoint each other. So we pray for grace. We pray that you'll give us grace to be patient with each other, to forgive each other, to confess our sins when we have wronged each other, to do so that we might be reconciled together and for our joy in Christ together. Father, help us to be wary, to be discerning of the false messages and false gospels that are out there. There are those who look very impressive. So help us, Father, see beyond the outside and to look to the teaching. Help us to care and to protect for each other in this way. And Father, please keep working within us to help us to know you more to help our, have our assurance rooted deeply in the gospel, not just in our performance. Help us to have this confidence of eternal life. For your glory we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.